The scripture this morning is from Matthew 19, 13 through 15, a continuation from last week. Matthew 19, 13 through 15. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Father, we come to you this morning and confess that apart from you, apart from your Son, apart from your Spirit, we can do nothing. Lord, that we are poor and needy and helpless like children. And God, we come and ask that you would help us hear. Help us be encouraged. Help us to be reminded, Lord, that you're with us. That you'll never leave us nor forsake us. God, remind us that you are for us and you love us. We pray, Lord, you would teach us how to live for you. Even when life is hard and even when we're discouraged. Lord, even when we have utterly failed and sinned against you. Father, teach us that you love us still. And that you care for us and that you will help us. Father, assure us of your love today like we've never known. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last week, in these verses, Jesus taught us that parents should diligently bring their children to Jesus. And Jesus comes for the humble, weak, needy, and dependent. He comes for children and all who humble themselves like these little children. And in that sermon, one thing that we did was meditate on 12 ways that parents should bring their children to Jesus. And if you remember, we had a visitor last week, Ben O'Toole, pastor of Windsor Baptist Church, and his family were here. Well, Ben is also a leader and teacher in the Simeon Trust Workshop, which is a ministry that seeks to help pastors grow in the way that they preach no matter how long they've been doing it. And I asked Ben, I said, you know, thanks for coming, and, and he, he gave me some feedback, but it was all positive, and I said, Ben, you know, are there any Simeon Trust stuff of the ways I can improve my, my, my sermon? And he wrote me this. How is there grace in Christ for parents who want to bring their children to Christ but are hindered or are falling short? So he wanted me to answer that question in my sermon. How is there grace in Christ for parents who want to bring their children to Christ but are hindered or are falling short? He said, I was left feeling that there is much to do, but I want to hear more about the fountain of life who can meet me and help me here and now. And so... I decided to preach a whole sermon on that to answer that question or seek to answer that question. I'd like to use this week to make another application from last week. What should parents do who have either failed to bring their children up in the fear and instruction of the Lord or who are enduring particularly hard circumstances and challenges while parenting their children now? And this is my thesis statement. Christian parents get to rest in the everlasting, unchanging, extravagant love, grace, and mercy of God in Christ, the fountain of life, and come to Jesus as little children, little helpless children, to find help for parenting. Christian parents get to rest in the everlasting, unchanging, extravagant love grace and mercy of God in Christ who is the fountain of life and come to Jesus as little helpless children to find help for parenting. My first point is a question. What if you totally failed 
as parents to bring your children to Jesus? What, what if you totally failed? If you were not a believer when you were a parent, then you would not have had the knowledge, strength, wisdom, or spiritual ability to bring your children to Jesus. So what do you, what do you, what do, you do if you were never a believer as you raised your children? Or maybe you were a Christian but just did not have good instruction on godly parenting. Or maybe you were a Christian and did know better, but you just failed to obey. Or maybe you were, are, not a failure as a parent at all. But you listen to Satan accuse you and tell you that you are. What should you do? Well, first, you must be absolutely convinced of the everlasting unchanging, extravagant love, grace, and mercy of God in Christ Jesus for you and for all of your failures in life and in every area of your life. You have to be convinced of that. That is a glorious state to be absolutely convinced of God's love, mercy, and grace for you no matter what your sins are. And that is the state of believers. That, that's what we should believe as believers. I heard a, a sermon recently where the pastor cataloged many of these ways that we are blessed in Christ Jesus. And we've got to be convinced of this. We, we have to pray, Lord, I believe this about who I am in Christ and my identity in Him. Help my unbelief. The pastor said, you are chosen and loved by God in eternity. You are predestined and loved with an everlasting love and underneath are His everlasting arms. You are predestined for sonship in His family. You are a child of the true and living God. You are ransomed from every evil bondage. You are purchased for God's precious possession. Christ has taken your place under the punishment of divine wrath. There is now no more condemnation for you forever. God has caused you to be born again. He has taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He has made you alive in Christ Jesus and given you the gift of repentance and faith. He has forgiven you of all your sins, past, present, and future, and declared you innocent before God. All your parenting sins are forgiven. You are irrevocably rescued from the terrors of everlasting torment in hell. You stand righteous in the court of heaven and have peace with God. He has adopted you as His own child and made you an heir of eternal life with the inheritance of all things. He has made His Holy Spirit to dwell inside you. The very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you and empowers you to walk with Jesus and have fellowship with His beloved Son. He is omnipotently committed to upholding you, to holding on to you, so that nothing can separate you from the love of God. He will make every pleasure and pain work for your eternal good. Even every parenting failure will be worked for your eternal good. I can't wait to get to that later in the sermon. That God even works your sin for good. He will lead you in paths of righteousness for His namesake. He will bring you safely to His eternal kingdom and present you blameless before the throne of His glory. He will bring you safely home to heaven. He will grant you to see the glory of Christ and be changed into His likeness. He will give you a new and glorious body for the enjoyment of all the endless delights of the age to come. He will grant you to sit with Him on His throne and share in His universal rule. He will give you access to the very presence of God where there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. He will wipe away every tear from your eye and there will be no more death and no more pain and no more sin and no more tears. And everything sad will become untrue as you enjoy the increasing joy of God's presence for all eternity. This is who you are, beloved child of God. And you must be convinced of this. Paul Tripp writes, if you are not resting as a parent in your identity in Christ, you will look for identity in your children. And you don't want to do that. 
So that's the first thing you, you should do as a parent who either has failed for some reason to bring your children to Jesus or you think you failed or you believe Satan li Satan's lies, you must be convinced of God's great mercy and love and care for you and find your identity centered in Jesus Christ and who you are in Him. Number two, you must rest in God's absolute sovereignty over all of your sins and all of your parenting failures. Yes, you are responsible for your failures and sins. Yes, you should confess your sins and forsake them. Yes, you should rest in the total and full forgiveness that are in Christ Jesus. But you must also know that whatever anyone else or even you have ever meant for evil in your life, God has meant it for good if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thought for believers. This means that even me, Joseph Randall, when I sin and mean things for evil, God means them for good. It doesn't mean what I did is good. It doesn't mean sin is good. But what I mean for evil as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God means for good. Genesis 50-20. Remember, Joseph, thrown into a pit, was going to be killed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, went to prison... And then God raised him up, right? What is the saying from the, from, the, from the pit to the prison to the palace? And his brothers who hated him, wanted to kill him, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery, come at the end of the book and they're scared to death. And Joseph says to them in Genesis 50, 20, the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you mean for evil, God means for good. Hallelujah. Beloved, your whole life has been planned by God. Every detail from the hairs of your head to the steps you walked to the uh, clothes you wore this morning. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has written your life in a book and He just carries out what He's read. You're, you're just carrying out what He's already written. God is sovereign. This is such a pillow to rest your head on. Ephesians 1.11 Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God is even sovereign over the most evil act that's ever been committed in the world, the crucifixion of the Son of God. In Acts chapter 4, we're told, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And God is working all of your life. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything, everything, everything is happening for your good. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Thomas Watson has a great book on this called All Things for Good and he talks about this fact that all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our weaknesses, everything is working together for good. He, he writes, this expression, work together, refers to medicine. Several poisonous ingredients put together, being tempered by the skill of the apothecary, someone who mixes medicine, like a pharmacist, make a sovereign medicine and work together for the good of the patient. So all God's providences, being divinely tempered and sanctified, do work together for the best to the saints. He who loves God and is called according to His purpose may rest assured that everything in the world shall be for His good. This is a Christian's cordial, which may warm him, make him like Jonathan, who when he had tasted the honey at the end of the rod, his eyes were enlightened. Why should a Christian destroy himself? Why should he kill himself with care when all things shall sweetly concur, yea, conspire for his good? The worst of things work for good to the godly. The evil of affliction works for the good of the godly. The evil of temptation works for the good of the godly. The evil of sin works for the good of the godly. Thus, our own sin shall work for good. Take that burden off. 
Our own sin shall work for our good. What we mean for evil, God means for our everlasting good. This must be understood warily when I say the sins of the godly work for good, not that there is the least good in sin. Sin is like poison which corrupts the blood, infects the heart, and without a sovereign antidote brings death. Such is the venomous nature of sin. It is deadly and damning. Sin is worse than hell, but yet God, by His mighty overruling power, makes sin in the issue turn to the good of His people. Hence the golden saying of Augustine, God would never permit evil if He could not bring good out of evil. So beloved, be, be convinced of this. And, and for the beloved, right, those who are truly beloved, this will only make you want to hate your sin more and flee from it more. It will in no way entice you to sin. <laughs> but God works all things for good. Even your failures. Third, if you failed at parenting because you're not a believer, if you failed at parenting because you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, so let's say you have adult children, but as you brought them up your whole life, you were never a believer, but then you became a believer after you left the home, well, what should you do? You must come to Jesus Christ and be saved. <laughs> Parent, you must come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved now. And we offer you the gospel through which you can be saved. And that gospel is the antidote to this sin that is poison and worse than hell. You see, God loves sinners. God hates sinners. He sends sinners to hell. He will punish them forever someday, but He also loves sinners. And so He did something to save sinners from His wrath. He, he, he did something. Namely, He sent His Son Jesus, the God-man. He's truly and fully God and truly and fully man. That's what... Uh, Go talk to Akabe about the hypostatic union that he mentioned last week, the joining of the divine and human natures in one person, even Jesus Christ our Lord. That, that's the hypostatic union. The God-man came down and lived among us and dwelt among us, and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned in the least bit in thought, word, or deed. He was always righteous, always humble, always loving, always said the right thing, always thought the right thought, always had the right feelings. He was never bored. And this perfect Lamb of God died on that cross and suffered God's infinite wrath and curse and judgment. And He bled out and died. And He was buried. But on the third day, on the third day, He rose from the dead. He conquered sin, death, and hell. That's why we're here today and not on Saturday because Jesus rose up from the dead. He got up from the tomb. And now, no matter what you've done, how bad you've been, if you turn from your sins and believe in Him, you shall be saved. The Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Saved from damnation. Saved from hell. Saved from your sins. Saved from a life of meaninglessness. Saved. So that all things work together for your good, even your sins when you were an unbeliever work for your good when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, would you do that today? If you're here and you're not a believer, I plead with you. Trust in Christ today. Repent of your sins. Turn from them and believe on Him and He will save you. He will change you. He will fill you with His Spirit. He will give you a desire for Him and His Word. And He will help you be the parent and the person God's called you to be. And then once you're saved, you have now. <laughs> you have now. You can seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to help your, ch your children come to Jesus now. No matter how old they are, you have now. And so bring them to Jesus. Go listen to the sermon last week and, and think about those 12 ways where we should bring our children to Jesus' parents. And for the believer... Those 12 ways are not burdensome because for the believer, the commands of God are not burdensome, but our delight. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. 
And so that's, that's the first question. What if you totally failed as parents to bring your children to Jesus? The second question I want to answer is what if you are a parent in hard, challenging circumstances? What if you are a parent in hard, challenging circumstances? Some parents are in very hard, challenging circumstances. They are single parents. And doing this all alone, humanly speaking, they're not alone. <laughs> Sometimes people ask me, are you, when you go up to Broadway, are you alone? Do you have somebody to help you? Well, I've always got three other people with me. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're never alone. We're alone, but not alone as believers. But, but humanly speaking, there are single parents who are alone, humanly speaking. Some have children with disabilities that make parenting even harder. Others are suffering in hard marriages with a spouse who is not a believer and doesn't give the love, support, and help that they should to help bring their children to Jesus. And some people even have a combination of all of these hard circumstances all together. And so, what if you are a parent in hard, challenging circumstances? Well, you, as a child of God, need to be convinced and trust that God loves you and brings you to Jesus through hard, challenging circumstances in parenting. You, as a child of the living God, adopted into the family, Loved of God. You need to be convinced and trust that God loves you. And that He brings you to Jesus through hard, challenging circumstances in parenting. The world, the flesh, and the devil may tempt you to believe that when life is hard, it is God's judgment on you, or that God is displeased with you, or that God is punishing you, but you must resist this temptation. You must resist this temptation. Do you remember what the prophet Ezekiel, who he names as the, the, the standard of righteous people in the Old Testament? Anybody remember that? He names three names. Even if these three men were here in all their righteousness, it wouldn't be enough for you. Daniel? Noah? Job? Yes. Ezekiel 14, 13-14, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Right. Beloved, I, I, I want you to think with me a moment about how uh, uh, much men like Daniel and Job suffered severely. And yet, they are the standard of righteous men in the Old Testament. And yet, how they suffered. And I'm telling you this because I want to try to inoculate you against the lie that because you suffer or have hardship in your life or pain in your life or things are hard, that that means God must be displeased with you. Or that you're in some way living an unrighteous life or you've done something in your past that's wrong. The, the most righteous men that the prophet could name as the standard of righteousness suffered greatly. Think of Daniel. Think of Daniel taken captive in Babylon. I mean, has anyone ever invaded your country and taken you captive? <laughs> Not suffered like that? Okay. He was. Daniel was taken captive in Babylon, uh, basically uh, exiled from all that he knew and loved, again, earthly speaking. He was enslaved in the king's court, threatened with death by the king. Leaders and high officials sought his death. He was thrown in a lion's den. Yet he's told three times in the book of Daniel that he's greatly loved. Three times in the book of Daniel, Daniel's told, you are greatly loved. And guess what, beloved? What do we have as Christians? The mm, mercies of... Mm. The sure mercies of David. 
We, we learn in the book of Acts that we as believers, because of the greater David, we have the sure mercies of David. Beloved, God sings over you that you are greatly loved. That you are greatly loved, even in the face of suffering. Job. Job was a very rich man. He had uh, lots of cattle, uh, 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 lots of children, and he lost everything. He lost everything. He was blameless. But he lost everything. He lost his ten children. He lost his health. In a sense, he lost his wife. His wife said, curse God and die. But he kept trusting God and said things like, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Job is the righteous, blameless one, and yet he suffered. Joseph, what about Joseph? Hated by his brothers. They wanted to kill him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. Can you imagine your own flesh and blood doing something like that to you? Maybe some of you can. Maybe some of you can. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused by his slave owner's wife. He was put in prison. And yet he trusted God and was faithful. And God raised him to second in power in Egypt. What about Jesus' disciples? These are the men Jesus handpicked to take his message to the world. All of them died because they followed Jesus, except John, and he was exiled. Do you think Jesus loved them? You think Jesus loved Peter? Yes, He did. And beloved, the greatest example we have, the most loved man who ever lived, the most beloved of God, the one whose love like no man has ever been loved by God, suffered the greatest that any man could ever suffer. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ suffered the greatest suffering that any man could ever suffer, like no man ever suffered or ever would suffer, and yet He was told over and over again by His beloved Father, Behold, this is My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Beloved, you've got to be convinced. I need to be convinced, because I do this too, that in suffering and pain and hardship and loss, in the hard circumstances of your parenting circumstances, God loves you. God loves you. God is for you. God cares about you. And just because you're suffering doesn't mean that God is against you. And so you must resist those lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it may very well mean that you are one of God's special ones. And that He loves you even more than the rest of us. Charles Spurgeon I love this book by Charles Spurgeon called Besides Still Waters. For those who suffer, it's little daily readings uh, taken from Spurgeon's sermons about how to endure suffering, trusting in Christ. Such a good book. If you're suffering, come and tell me. I'll get you this book. But he writes this, The more He loves you, the more He will test you. Sometimes He says, Good woman, I shall take away your husband on whom you lean, that you may lean the more on me. I remember Samuel Rutherford writing to a lady who had lost five children, and her husband said, Oh, how Christ must love you. He would take every bit of your heart to Himself. He would not permit you to reserve any of your soul for any earthly thing. Can we stand that test? Can we let all go for His sake? And then he has a meditation on heaven's favorites. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They were three of his special favorites, and thus he sent them an extraordinary trial. When a dealer in precious gems finds a stone of minimum value, little time is spent cutting it. But when a rare diamond is found, that stone will be cut and cut and cut again. When the Lord finds a saint whom He loves much, He may spare others trials and trouble, but not this one, His well-beloved. The more Jesus loves you, the more of the rod you will feel. It is a painful, it is a pain 
to be a favorite of heaven, but seek it and rejoice in it. Being in the king's council chamber involves such work for faith that flesh and blood might cringe from the painful blessing. If a gardener gets an inferior tree, he lets it grow wild and takes whatever fruit it produces. But if the tree is exceptional, he will want every branch in its proper place. He will cut here and cut there because this produces more fruit. The gardener leaves nothing on the tree that would be detrimental. You who are God's favorites must not be astonished when trials appear. Remember, rather keep your door wide open. And when trials come, say, Welcome, messenger of the King. The sound of your master's feet is behind you. You are welcome, for your master has sent you. And so, beloved, take heart. Take heart and remember uh, these, these biblical examples and this biblical truth that just because you are suffering, just because circumstances are hard and, and life is hard in your parenting or, or, or in any uh, way else in your life, it doesn't mean God is against you or displeased with you or doesn't love you. It may well mean He loves you even more. He loves you even more. How are we as God's children instructed to respond to hardships and trials? Psalm 119.71 It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. James 1.2-4 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be per- perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Romans 5, 3-5 More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And beloved, another struggle that I have, I don't know if you have it, but I face hardships and trials and hard circumstances and then I wonder, what if God's disciplining me? What what if God's disciplining me? Well, a lot of times we don't know. We don't know if this is the discipline of the Lord. We we don't know. But this, this is the thing we know for sure. If God is disciplining you, it's an expression of His love. It's not an expression of His displeasure or hatred. It's an expression of God's love. Hebrews 12, 5-6 And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. We don't know why we go through hard circumstances. We we don't know why. We have a lot of questions in this life and in this world. Why, Lord? Why? And we, We don't know all the answers, but we know this for sure. Even if it is the Lord's discipline, it's His love for us. It's His love. He loves you. He loves you. If it's His discipline, it's because He loves you. It's all love. You as a child of God need to be convinced and trust that God loves you and brings you to Jesus through hard, challenging circumstances in parenting. Second, you as a child of God get to come to Jesus through His Word for help while parenting. So so that that was one of Ben's questions. I I was felt feeling like there's much to do, but wanted to hear more about the fountain of life who can meet me and help me here and now. And how does He meet you and help you? In His Word. In His Word. And you can take refuge in His Word and find what you need to encourage you and help you and strengthen you in the calling He's given you as a parent. Psalm 119, 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119.72 The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 
Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Words that you might need to hear, like in Isaiah 43, 1-3. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Throw them in the fire, but they never get burned. None of God's children, we never get burned. Kill the man of God, but we never get burned. None of God's children, we never get burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Or Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or sometimes when you're so afraid, you fear, feel paralyzed by fear, you can repeat to yourself, when I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you in you we have the privilege when we face hardship and trial and don't know what to do we have the privilege of coming to God in his word for help and aid Jesus said in John 15 5 whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing and so we come to Jesus we come to Jesus in his word for strength for guidance for encouragement to go on and do what we ought to do and parent the way we ought to parent. Third, you as a child of God get to come to Jesus through prayer for yourself and for your children while parenting. You as a child of the King, you have the privilege of having the ear of the everlasting God to hear you when you pray to Him for help for yourself and help and salvation for your children. Luke 18, 1-8, Jesus told a parable to encourage His people to keep praying and not lose heart. I'm going to read Luke 18, 1-8. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to Him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Very briefly, in this parable, Jesus contrasts God with the unjust judge in order to encourage us to pray. Our God is the righteous judge. Our God is the loving judge. Our God is the all-wise, all-knowing, all-sufficient judge, unlike this unjust judge. This widow, she's a stranger. She's alone. She has no help. She's most vulnerable in society without a husband in that society. She's been treated unjustly. She is nameless in our text. And yet, what are her actions to an unjust judge? Persistence. Perseverance. She keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. Give me justice against my enemy. In this parable, Jesus also contrasts us with the widow. We are not lonely. We are not helpless and vulnerable and forsaken and nameless widows. We are God's elect. We are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are His chosen ones. We are His loved ones. We are the apple of His eye. The widow came as a stranger, but we come as children, as beloved, as the very bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. This widow came alone with no one to help, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This widow came as one of the most vulnerable in society, but we come as those God is for. And if God is for us, who can be against us? 
This widow came as one treated unjustly, but we come as those free from the just condemnation of God forever because Jesus was punished in our place so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This widow came nameless, but we come as those foreknown by God and chosen by Him and loved by Him with an everlasting love. We are engraved on the palm of His hands. This widow came with no promises to plead. But we have a God who assures us that He will hear us and answer us and work everything out for our everlasting good. If the unjust judge can be won over by the pleading of the widow, how much more will the righteous, loving, wise, all-powerful judge answer His precious children when we cry to Him? And so parents, realize that you have this privilege, that you are coming to a king. So large petitions with you bring. You can never ask too much for God's grace and mercy are such that He can never be outasked, as the hymn writer wrote. Parents, come to Christ. Come to Christ in prayer for yourself. Come to Christ in prayer that He would help you uh, be the parent you, He wants you to be. Come to Christ to pray and plead for the souls of your children, for He alone can change their hearts. Fourth, you as a child of God get to come to Jesus through the encouragement of the church for help in parenting. You as, as parents in, in, a, in a church body, you have the unbelievable privilege of, of coming to Christ in the local body of the church. We're called in Hebrews 10 to not forsake the assembly. And why are we called to come together? To stir up one another to love and good works. We need each other. We need each other to help one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds in parenting. We need to be encouraged. We're to come together to encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day of Christ's return coming near, we need to encourage one another. And so parents, you need to be stirred up. You need to be encouraged. This happens in the life of the church. If you're struggling or you need help in parenting, if, if you've never done this parenting stuff before, if things are not going well at all in your house, we have numerous parents here in the church who would love to meet with you. They would love to talk with you. They would love to pray with you and, and even shepherd you and help you parent according to God's Word. That's what the church is for. We've, we've got to be open with one another about our sins and our struggles and our fears and our needs and take advantage of the godly parents God has put here to help you and help each other. And we have plenty of books on parenting as well. Amen. <laughs> we have plenty of books on parenting as well that you can read and, and study from people who've gone before you and have put these teachings of God's Word in parenting in books that you can read and study and grow in Christ in your parenting. So if you're struggling, come to the fountain of life through other Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit and other Spirit-filled authors who wrote so that you might follow Jesus faithfully in parenting. Five, you as a child of God get to come to Jesus as your chief joy for strength in parenting. You as a child of God get, get to find your joy not in successful parenting. <laughs> you, you get to come to Jesus not, not, not as those who find their joy in how well behaved their children are. You, you get to come to, 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 to Jesus as your joy. And He never changes. And so that joy never changes. The psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. One writer said, The main thing I need to do every morning is get myself happy in God. That's more important than anything else. Is to get my soul happy in God. That will be the strength of your parenting. It is, a, is As you love your children, I love... I love Piper's definition of love. Love is an overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. 
Love is an overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. That's how we should parent. We have an overflow of joy in God. I'm just happy in the Lord. Jesus is my lover, my all in all, my everything. And and that overflows out of me to gladly meet the needs of my children and whoever else God has called me to love. Or the way Paul put this joy in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christ, joy in Christ is the strength from which I live and parent. And beloved, I hope for those of you who are parent, not parents, those of you who are here today not parents are thinking, well, this sermon has nothing to do with me, so I just shouldn't listen. Can you not see all the applications for you as well and everything else you're doing? In whatever you're doing, the joy of the Lord should be your strength. In the people God's called you to love, whether it's children or anyone else, you need an overflow of joy in God to gladly meet the needs of others. This is applicable for everyone, including parents. Paul Tripp in this book writes, it is only rest in God's presence and grace that will make you a joyful and patient parent. It is only rest in God's presence and grace that will make you a joyful and patient parent. Rest in His grace. Rest in His love. Rest in His mercy. Rest in His forgiveness. And, 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 and he also writes in this book, the best parenting passage in the entire Bible. What do you think is the best parenting passage in the entire Bible according to Paul David Tripp? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's the mission statement of our church. Does anybody know the mission statement of our church? It starts with a G and it has a second word in it with a C and it rhymes with Ishan. The Great Commission. Yes. Um, uh, the best parenting passage in the entire Bible, he says, is Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he makes several applications about the fact that Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all authority and you can rest in Him when you do your parenting. And Jesus promises to be with you so that you know He's going to be with you to help you disciple your children to be followers of Christ. He writes, you should be encouraged by this, you will not be punished for your failure. You will not be punished for your failure. Jesus has died for you. Jesus has risen for you. you. You are forgiven. There is no condemnation for you as a parent. And you are welcomed by grace to new beginnings. He's there for you. He has all authority. And He's going to use all that authority to help you carry out this calling. And He's going to be with you to help you carry out this calling. You are not left to your limited resources. And God blesses you with the right here, now, right now wisdom of His Word. You are not left to your limited resources and God blesses you with the right here, right now wisdom of His Word. Jesus is with us. He's going to help us in whatever calling He gives us in making disciples, which for parents that means making disciples of your children. He's going to be with you and He's going to help you. Uh, You do not have to load the burden of your children's welfare on your shoulders every morning. You do not have to load the burden of your children's welfare on your shoulders every morning. You weren't meant to bear that burden. Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, was meant to bear that burden. And so cast it on Him. Cast it on Him. Tripp writes, God will never close His ears to your cries for help. Back to the uh, uh, widow that cried to God. He's, 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 he's available for you. He hears your cries. Cry out, pray. He's there. He'll hear. He'll help. Weakness is not a curse. It's a blessing. Weakness in parenting is not a curse. It's a blessing because in your weakness, God is strong. God will be your strength. God will be your help. In your weakness, He will help you. 
And success is about faithfulness, not results. Success is about faithfulness, not results. God calls you in the Great Commission to teach, to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And you can trust Him to do what only He can do, namely change their hearts to do that. And so God is with you. And He is your joy. He is your delight. And so let the words of Nehemiah 8.10 ring in your heart. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Six, you as a child of God get to come to Jesus who deeply loves you as one whom He's called to be a parent. You as a child of God get to come to Jesus who deeply loves you as one whom He's called to be a parent. Again, uh, Paul Tripp writes in this book, there is nothing more important to consistent, faithful, patient, loving, and effective parenting than to understand that God has given you, understand what God has given you in the grace of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this is, this is the most important thing about parenting. It, it, it is, 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 is to know what God has given you in the grace of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you meditate upon that? Do you rest in the love of God in Christ for you? Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that includes you, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God has always loved you. Isn't that what one theologian said? The greatest reason God will ne never stop loving you is that He never started. He's loved you with an everlasting love. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life. I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Paul makes that very personal there. He loved me and gave Himself for me. Beloved, that's personal for you too. He loves Tanya. He gave Himself for Tanya. He loves George. He gave Himself for George. He loves Jerry. and gave Himself for Jerry. He loves Becky. He gave Himself for Becky. He loves Rhonda. He gave Himself for Rhonda. And He'll sing over you. He sings over you. Child of God, Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Parents, remember, you are children of God and you get to come to Jesus who deeply loves you as one whom He's called to be a parent. Seven. You as a child of God get to come to Jesus through trusting Him in all your parenting. Proverbs 3.5 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. God wants you to come to Him and trust Him. Trust Him with your past. Trust Him with your marriage. Trust Him with your hard marriage. Trust Him with your parenting. Trust Him with your difficulties in parenting. Trust Him with your sins and failures as a parent. Trust Him with all your hardships and trials and losses and pains and sufferings. Trust Him with your children. Trust Him with your future. Trust Him with your children's futures. We have to trust God. Because God is the one who ultimately is going to bring your child to Jesus or not. Remember, I mentioned that Ed Moore said in that sermon I sent out to everybody that, that, that he knows parents who've done it better than him as far as bringing their children to Jesus and taught them everything and, and obeyed the, the Word of God and yet their children walked away from Jesus. And then he knows other parents who totally have blown it and didn't do everything they were supposed to, and their kids are on fire for Jesus. And what, what, what is that an illustration of? Not that we should not be responsible and do the best we can, but it's just an illustration of, in the end, it's ultimately up to God. It's ultimately up to God what happens to our children, and we must trust God. 
and cast our cares on Him about this. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Again, Paul Tripp writes in his book, Instability, or Inability, Inability, recognizing that you are unable to do uh, recognize what you are unable to do is essential to good parenting. You have to realize your inability as a parent. You have to recognize the, what you are unable to do and, and realizing that is essential to good parenting. He writes, here's the bottom line for every parent. The change that has to happen in each of your children, you can't create. In fact, nowhere in His Word has God tasked you with the responsibility to create it. Good parenting is about becoming okay with the fact that you are powerless to change your child. In fact, good parenting is about celebrating the fact that God has never and will never put that burden of change on you. Because changing your children is a burden that we could never bear. God bore that burden for us by sending His Son to be the author of lasting personal change. The burden that caused His sin liberates us parents and gives new life to our children. Now that's good news. So our job is simple. It's not to create change, but to be humble and willing instruments of change in the hands of the one and only author of change. Our job is not to create change, but to, humble, to be humble and willing instruments of change in the hands of the one and only author of change. And beloved, finally, number eight, you as a child of God get to come to Jesus for extravagant mercy to help you parent for God's glory. Paul Tripp again writes, no parent gives mercy better than one who is convinced that he desperately needs it himself. No parent gives mercy better than one who is convinced that he desperately needs it himself. That is probably why men like John Carlson, who was here a few weeks ago, is so good at counseling those with drug addiction because he's been there, done that. <laughs> he, he was addicted to drugs and almost lost everything, including his wife. He, he was an alcoholic. And so when he talks to people who have the same struggles, he's filled with a sense of the mercy of God. No parent gives mercy better than the one who is convinced that he desperately needs it himself. Beloved, do you realize you desperately need mercy? Jonah 4.2, I love, I love Jonah's description of God. A gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I love Psalm 147.11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His mercy. Parents and everyone else, you will mess up. We are all sinners. But where we mess up and where sin abounds, God's Word says grace abounds all the more. In William Farley's book on parenting, he tells a story uh, about how he got angry with his 14-year-old daughter when she had sinned, but he, he got angry and he actually spanked her in his anger when she was 14. And after he did that, he realized that that wasn't appropriate and he sinned against his daughter and he had to humble himself before his daughter and confess his sins and ask God for forgiveness and ask her for forgiveness. He had to repent. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin in life, in parenting. But where our sin abounds, God's grace and mercy abound all the more. And because of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, we do have extravagant mercy. He forgives us of all our sins and creates a culture and environment in our church and in our home where we're free to confess sins to one another 
free to love one another, free to forgive one another, and free to know that we're all accepted in the Beloved and loved by God, and that He who began a good work in us will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Christian parents, you get to rest in the everlasting, unchanging, extravagant love, grace, and mercy of God in Christ, the fountain of life, and come to Jesus as little helpless children to find help for all your parenting needs. Christ Jesus helps all parents thrive. In all your work and labor strive, He gives you strength. His joy, live, will animate and give you drive to bring your kids to Christ. Revive. For Jesus died and rose alive. You're saved. God's grace will sure arrive. All parents' sins, your mind's archive, He cast into the sea. They dive. This hardship, parent, you'll survive. For from His hand, all things derive. He's sovereign King who won't deprive your life of any good contrive. In Christ, you'll more than conquer thrive. For He's your all. He's your joy. Drive. Father, we pray that You would help us come to You, Jesus, even as we heard the exhortations to bring our children to Christ. Lord, we pray that we would come to Christ. That we would rest in Your absolute love for us and the identity we have in You. That we would rest in Your absolute sovereignty over all of our lives and sins and failures and and everything we do, Lord, You're sovereign. We pray, Lord God, that we would come and find peace and joy and strength in Your Word. Father, we pray that we would continually pray and ask for help. We pray that that parents in need would would come and, and get help from Your church and other parents. Father, we pray that we would find You, Lord Jesus, to be our joy and that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. Lord, we pray that we would know there's grace and mercy and salvation in You. That we would rest in You. Father, You know what we need. You know what the parents here need to be encouraged to love You and love their children and rest in You as they should. So please, Holy Spirit, apply uh, this Word to them as they need to hear it. And Father, we pray we would all be encouraged to love, trust, and walk with Christ and come to Jesus as little helpless children who confess, Lord, we can't do it. Apart from You, we can do nothing. And so we, we ask, God, You would help us. Help us in whatever You've called us to, whether it's parenting and parenting, Whatever our, our, our vocational callings are, help us. Father, we need Your help. Help the students. Help the children. Help us come to You, poor and needy, knowing that You are our strength and our help. And we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.